you have your Bibles, we are in Matthew chapter 26, beginning with the 31st verse. Matthew 26:31, from the garden before the cross. The garden before the cross. And I will have a visual that I will show you here in just a moment. But I want to read the story, read the text, and then we will watch it on the screen. Verse 31, then Jesus told them, the very night you will fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And this is a direct correspondence to the prophecy found in Zechariah 13:7. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I will never. Of course, we know that he does because Jesus goes on and foretells that I tell you the truth this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, which means olive press. This this was a garden that Jesus would frequently go to to pray and sometimes meet with his disciples. Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, which are James and John, along with him. And he began to be be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell on his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour, he asked? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. And he went a second time and prayed, My father, if it's not possible this cup be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Jesus has had an interesting week up to this point. On Sunday, the crowds have praised him as he has walked into Jerusalem. And they've cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna, which literally means save us now, save us now. Many believed he, in fact, was the Messiah. Many believed that He may be the one that would restore the nation of Israel to its former status. They were excited and they praised him, whether they understood him or not. Matter of fact, they praised him so much and cried out so much that the religious officials at that time came and said, Teacher, quiet your disciples. Tell your people to hold it down. But they knew if the Roman government heard that, they may think that it was a revolt and come and squash it as they had done before. But Jesus said, you know, if they don't cry out, then the rocks themselves will cry out. This was a direct reference to those who had been buried. He was, as you enter into the city of Jerusalem, uh, there are mounds of rocks, some caves of where many were buried 
And Jesus was making a reference to those who had died, those who had been buried there on the outskirts of Jerusalem, who had longed for the appearing of the Messiah, who had longed to see the promised Christ who would come, who had waited with great anticipation. On Monday, Jesus cleared the temple because of the corruption. In the temple, this was an extremely busy time because all those who uh, had come for Passover caused the city to swell anywhere from five to even, some scholars say, even 20 times its normal population. And so many had come to the temple during this time, but those who were in authority, the temple priest and some who were simply government officials, took this opportunity to make a lot of money. And there were, on the outskirts of the temple, there was the court of the Gentiles, is what it was called. It were for those who were not Jews, they were not allowed to come inside the temple itself, but these were the courts of which they could come and pray. And even hear lessons, hear the Torah read, where they might learn more about Yahweh God. But there was no place for them to worship, because it had been set up in a manner in which they exchanged money, in which they were selling temple sacrifices at an exorbitant price. And so Jesus sees that those who needed Christ the most, who needed to know the story the most, who had not been privileged to have been raised as Jews and hear uh, in great detail about Yahweh God, they're not even afforded the opportunity to come. And if they did, there, there certainly wasn't much prayer or worship transpiring because the tables are set up all around the temple in the courts of the Gentiles. So Jesus sees this, so he makes a whip and he literally drives the money changers out. So on the next day, on Tuesday, what happens? Well, they're so angry, the officials of the temple are so angry, they come and they say, by what authority did you do this? What gives you the right? Who are you? And they, they knew who he claimed to be. And they knew that they were wrong. But it was affecting them Politically and monetarily. So on Wednesday, the betrayal, after we studied a couple of weeks ago about the ointment that Mary puts on the feet of Jesus, and whether she realizes or not, Jesus said, she has prepared me for my burial. At this point, Judas leaves, because the Bible tells us that he was probably frustrated and embarrassed, because he said, couldn't this ointment have been sold and given to the poor? And John clearly tells us he doesn't care about the poor. He simply wanted to use it as an opportunity to pilfer from the funds. He wants to exploit Jesus, at least in that essence. And after that moment, he goes and the betrayal process starts this Wednesday. And then Thursday, the institution of Passover, and now a new institution that Jesus gives, which we will now call the Lord's Supper, or we do today, is begun. The pronouncement of his death is made yet again for the fourth time. And now we see him entering in the garden. He knows what is ahead. He knows that the crucifixion, that the beating, that the trial is before him. He fully recognizes that. And he makes the pronouncement of what will occur and he says, this very night, 
In verse 31, you will fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But Peter says, not I, Lord, even if everyone else falls away. But we, in fact, know that all the disciples do flee. And Peter denies Jesus three times before dawn, before the rooster will crow. Now, how does that happen? You ever wonder about that? I always wondered about that. You know, here's Peter and we see. We know from a couple of the other Gospels that he's so uh, so avid and so angry that he actually pulls out a makeshift sword and attempts to kill one of the one of the temple guard servants, and it actually cuts the ear off of Malchus. And Jesus restores the ear, and it seems like he's ready to go. He's ready to rumble. But that same night, he denies that he even knows Christ. He denies that he's ever followed him. How does that happen? Well, for one, we seem to have a good indicator here as we read through the story, a lack of prayer, a lack of understanding, and a lack of probably time. John 17 was the longest prayer that Jesus prayed recorded in Scripture. They've just come off this time, but still they're probably not actually getting it. Then there's the peer pressure issue. One leaves, they all leave, and all of a sudden it kind of confronts you. It's kind of like talking a big game, and then you have to play it. They're scared and disillusioned. This is not how they saw it going down. And for Peter in particular, maybe he had a higher assessment of his strength than was real. Maybe his ego got in the way. And when it came to an issue that required faith, ego wasn't quite strong enough to meet the need. I remember the first time that happened for me. I was in second grade, and it was my third year to spend on the first and second year playground. Uh, We had our playground divided, first and second grade playground, third and fourth, fifth and sixth, East Leesville Elementary. I had already spent two years in first grade, so I knew this playground pretty well. And here I am my third year on this playground. And my dad, when I was in first grade, because I had gotten... Uh, gotten beat up a couple times. He bought some boxing gloves for me, and and uh, he said, "Now this is what I want you to do, and you can put your hands over your children's ears at this point." He said, "The next time somebody picks on you, or does this, you just ball your fist up and hit them in the nose as hard as you can." And we practiced with the boxing gloves, so I began to do that. It worked incredibly well. It worked so well, I became the enforcer on the first and second grade playground. I was very proud of myself. You know, sometimes I, I would, you know, sometimes my friends would go, "Hey." He hit me, I'd go over there and hit them, make them cry. And just thought I was kind of, you know, enforcer for, not for Jesus, just really for me. <clears throat> I'll never forget, a friend of mine came and said, Joseph Boyd, we called him Dinky, pushed me off my, uh, pushed me off my swing and hit me. So I said, okay, I'll go take care of Joseph. So I walked over there. I punched Joseph in the nose. He looked at me. And then he punched me. And then he punched me some more as I lay on the ground. I learned that day that, you know what, that doesn't always work. It doesn't always work. I had an unrealistic uh, ego at that point, an unrealistic expectation of my confidence and how, mu- how good I really was or how tough I really was. You see, it, it worked until there was somebody stronger than me, until there was somebody bigger than me. Until somebody did it to me. 
I can tell you after that point, I wasn't near as uh, quick to jump into a fight because that one hurt. <laughs> and uh, I didn't want that happening again. So I didn't go looking for it at that point. I, I had a more realistic understanding of what I was able to accomplish at that point. And maybe that's exactly what happened to Peter at this point. Maybe the spirit was willing, but the flesh was actually quite weak. When hard times come, and when hard times came, what did Jesus do? Jesus says is at an incredibly difficult time. He knows what's going to happen. He knows that he's going to be beaten, and he knows he's going to be crucified. He knows that the weight of the sin of the world is going to be placed upon him. He knows that the Father will have to turn his very back upon him at that moment. But here he is. And what does he do? He goes to the garden, the place where he and his disciples would often go and pray, where he frequently would pray. And he's here with his friends, those whom he trusts the most, who he's invested three years of his life. He's told them what's coming, but they don't quite get it. You know, sometimes we have a fear of the future as well, but we don't really know what's going to happen in the future. And Matthew 6 addresses that. And he said, Jesus tells us on the Sermon on the Mount right there in Matthew that, you know what, don't worry about the things of the world. Don't worry about the things of this earth. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And and trust me to take care of the things that you can't take care of. Do what you can. Earn a living. Pay your bills. Be faithful. And the things that you can't, trust me, it won't do you any good to worry. But Jesus, in fact, knows what's about to happen. He's fully God and he's fully man. He's going to fully feel it and he has full understanding of what is about to happen. You ever been there? Maybe you come in this morning and this is a difficult time for you and here's the universal principle. Everyone in here has either had a hard time in your past, you're having a hard time right now, or you're going to have a hard time. And in fact, the universal principle is this. Either you are in one or you're going to have one eventually. Aren't you glad you came today? That's just the truth. So the question is not, will hard times come? The question is, what do we do when they do happen? It's not maybe so much how do we get out of them, but how do we get through them? And it's interesting what Jesus does. He heads to the garden to pray. And he feels the pain and the weight of the world upon his shoulders, literally. As he thinks about what he will endure, as he thinks about how his friends will leave him and he will be alone, it had to be pretty much depressing. I would dare say that Jesus enters into a moment of depression, if not several. And why do I say that? Well, it just kind of looks that way when I'm reading the Scripture here in verse 38. Because Jesus says to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Maybe you came in here this morning with your church face on. But inside, you are dying. Maybe you can relate to Jesus when he says, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow even to the point of death. Maybe the job situation 
has gotten the best of you. Maybe your relationship at home, maybe it's a child, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's something else. But you resonate with that prayer. You resonate with that statement. And can I tell you, Jesus resonates with you because he's been there, because he's felt it. And he feels it with you today. The next thing that I noticed Jesus did beyond prayer is he reached out. He reached out to his friends, those he'd invested his life with for the last three years. And as he reaches out to them, he has a fairly disappointing experience because he invites James and John and Peter to come with him. And they're there. And he says, watch with me. And also he encourages them to pray that they not fall into temptation. But what actually occurs is when he comes back, they're asleep. He walks a few feet away and he comes back there. They're sleeping. And he says, can you not pray with me for an hour? I mean, this is the time. He's already told them four times, I'm, I'm going to be delivered to death. I mean, it's coming. This is it. Jesus, we're with you. We're there. And then he goes and he prays the prayer that he just prayed. God, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. Let this cup of pain and suffering, Lord, take it away. And he prays that three times. And each time he comes back, they're asleep. And he shares with them his discouragement, his hurt, his pain. I learned a lesson from Jesus right there. First of all, he, he wants me to pray. Secondly, he wants me to share. But the other lesson I learned right there is that sometimes people are going to disappoint you. And the response is not that we run away or we cut them off, but we attempt to let them know how we really feel and what's really going on with us. Sometimes we tell people, hey, it's kind of tough. You would just pray for me. And then we get mad because, you know, they didn't offer to come by. They didn't check on me. You know, nobody said anything to me lately. I'm just not going to tell anybody. If somebody asks, I'm just going to tell them I'm fine. I'm, I'm fine. And, but I'm mad. And I don't trust them anymore. And I tell you what, if they're sick, I'm not doing anything for them. They better not ask me to pray. I'll pray all right for them. Isn't it interesting? I mean, Jesus is dying. And there, I mean, he knows what's occurring. And this is like the worst moment of anybody's life. And what does he do? He continues to pursue them. He continues to come back. And later on, he, he welcomes them with open arms. I learned a great lesson from Jesus right there. That my friends aren't going to be perfect, and that's not even going to be a question. But am I going to continue to allow them to be my friends? Am I going to continue to reach out to them? Jesus certainly does that. He certainly reaches out. I think it's a great lesson for us to learn and to glean. I mean, he could have said, dude... I am dying, literally. I'm dying here. Maybe sometimes we need to communicate more effectively. Maybe sometimes there's more going on in the voice than there are in the words. And I'm sure they missed it. Jesus continued to pursue them even after they failed. And he continues to pursue us even when we fail him. Next, we see that he was persistent in his prayer. As I mentioned a while ago, John chapter 17 was the longest prayer Jesus prayed. And he continues to be persistent. He prays privately, this text tells us. He goes off and he prays. And he asks people to pray with him and he shares this time. Something that we should glean and learn. To let people share 
and our pain experience through prayer. He prays intimately according to Mark chapter 14, verse 36, as he cries out, Abba, Daddy. He's so real and authentic with God. And he's saying, God, if there's any way you can do it another way, let this cup pass. I don't want to do this. I get comfort from that prayer, by the way. I mean, that helps me that Jesus is crying out saying, I don't want to do this. I mean, he's like fully God and fully man. But not thy will, but thine. I mean, I'm, I'm encouraged by that prayer right there. If Jesus can pray, it, it probably means it's okay for me to pray it. Even though Jesus' prayer didn't get answered. Even though God didn't rescue him from the situation. Kind of happened with Job. Happened with Paul. Where they asked God to remove the situation and God chooses to move them through the situation. Maybe you're here today and you wonder, why doesn't God answer my prayer? Why doesn't he remove me from this terrible situation? Why doesn't he get this out of my life? Why doesn't he get this situation out? Maybe we're, maybe it's not because we're unholy, because we hadn't said the right prayer, the right formula. Maybe it's not because we haven't attended the right church yet. Maybe it's because God is seeking the greater glory of his kingdom and he's more concerned about moving you through it than away from it. That's kind of varsity stuff. That's kind of hard, hard message to receive. Particularly as Jesus is praying, not my will but thine. They're going to beat me. They're going to crucify me. They're going to put nails through my hands, through my feet. I mean, this is going to be awful. You got another way? And I mean, there was a lot more intensity than that. But nevertheless, not what I want. You know, I also I'm encouraged by I'm encouraged by in Daniel chapter three, verse seventeen and eighteen. You remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They're three Hebrew children, teen, probably teenagers at this point, and they have been taken by the Babylonian Empire from their homeland, and they've been taken uh, to serve in Nebuchadnezzar's economy. And the word gets out after Nebuchadnezzar, who is full of himself and decides to make this huge idol and says, everybody has to worship this, which really made him probably feel better about himself, that he could look out and see everybody else kneeling but himself. And this is something I made. Some, A couple of scholars will even say it was in the image of himself. But nevertheless, he hears the word, hey, there's some of those kids, they're not, they're not bowing. You made a law that when the horns blow that we've got to get down on our face and worship. And there's... There's three of those Hebrews. They're not doing it. And he said, bring them before me. And I bet he was thinking, they come before me. I bet you they won't be so strong. They look me in the eye and let's see if, let's see if they'll be obedient at that point. So sure enough, he brings them in, tells them, I want to make sure you clearly understand what's expected of you so that there's no question that you are to bow when the horns blow. You're going to, you're, when the music plays, you're going to bow before the altar that I have created here. And uh, let me just make it real clear. If you don't, you're going in the furnace. And he literally says this. And there's no God nor man that will be able to save you. Your God's not going to be able to save you at that point. So think about for just a second. I'm going to give you another opportunity. And they go, we don't need one. We don't need one. Matter of fact, let me just be real clear with you, Nebuchadnezzar. They didn't say that, uh, by the way. But they said, literally, we don't have to. Reconsider. We don't, we don't have to wonder what we're going to do. Because here's the deal. Our God is able to deliver us. We believe our God will deliver us. But 
King Nebuchadnezzar, even if he does not, we still will not bow to your idol. Wow. We believe that God will deliver us. We believe he can. But let me say this. If he doesn't, it won't change our faith. We will not bow. Man, I I marvel at that. And when I see that, I'm encouraged too. I'm inspired. As Jesus says, God, remove it. I know you can. And that's my request. But if you don't, whatever is best for your glory, whatever is best for your kingdom, not my will but thine. Uh, That's the graduate level prayer right there. That's where God desires for us to be. And it's hard. It is a hard road. And it always leads through the garden, through the garden of prayer, through the garden of difficult circumstances. And so Jesus prays continually. We know he prayed three times. and You know, it reminds me of the story in Luke chapter 18. Remember the parable of the widow who came before the unjust judge and she kept asking and asking. And her request was, was valid. Matter of fact, it was one the judge probably should have dealt with. But because she's a widow, nobody cares. I've got things going on. I'm busy. Perhaps he thought. And finally, he says to the widow after her continual coming, she says, not because I fear God nor man, but because you basically weary me. Because you keep coming, I'm going to take care of you. Now, sometimes people will look at that and say, see, that's what God wants us to do. He wants us to just wear him out. He just wants us to manipulate him and just pray, 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 pray the same prayer until he does it. Actually, that's not what Jesus interprets the parable at all. Matter of fact, he says he actually lets us know that that's not the metaphor, that the judge is not to be looked at as God. Okay, so the unjust judge is not to be viewed as God Almighty. Why? Because God does care. He does love. He does want to work in and through your life, and he does want to carry you. So it's not because you bait him or because you so annoy him that you will get him to respond. He wants to move in your life. See, that's the difference. But God wants us to pray and consistently call out to him in faith, letting our hearts be known because we are being honest and authentic and because we are recognizing So it's not in repetition. It's in the compassion and the passion of our heart that we cry out as we display our recognition of what God can do if he so chooses to. That's exactly what Jesus did. That's what Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. They prayed through the pain. Sometimes God removes us from the situation, but sometimes God moves us through the situation. So this morning, I want to give you some action points. What do I do in addition to prayer? Well, number one, when we hit hard times, confess and repent. Is there something that I need to deal with in my life? Because sometimes God uses that as a purging mechanism. Sometimes God uses the everyday events of life or the difficulties of life to get our attention. As C.S. Lewis said, God screams in our pain. He whispers in our joy, but he screams in our pain because our ears are wide open. Secondly, receive the grace of God. Recognize that He wants to walk with you. Recognize that He is carrying you in those times sometimes that you don't feel Him. Third, get yourself a rooster. If we read the rest of this story, 
we'll see where the rooster crows. And Peter's denied himself three times. And Jesus has already said, this is going to happen. Most of us just need a rooster. What do I mean by a rooster? We need a voice speaking truth into our life, speaking accountability into our life. And for some of you, that may or may not be your spouse. They may be able to do that. And in case you're wondering, you may want to ask them, because most of us really aren't that good at taking spiritual critique, much less any other kind of critique from our spouse. So ask them, hey, um, how do I do when you do that? And I want to give you permission to critique me. I want you to give, give permission. And, and if you don't have that, then, then let's leave you somebody else. Let's don't beat ourselves up and so, you know, if you're a spiritual leader, you do it right. Let's, let's just get out of that whole little argument deal, and let's just deal with reality for a moment, okay? Let's deal with our sin, because most of us are always wanting to project on someone else the reason that we can't be accountable, the reason I'm not more faithful, the reason I'm not more godly is because my kids, my husband, my wife, my job, that church, I don't have a good Sunday school teacher, da-da-da, I didn't get raised properly when I was a child. We, we always have something that we want to put it on. And some of us just need a rooster. We just need somebody saying, okay, did you spend time with God today? What, this week? Have you been accountable? Have you been looking at pornography? I mean, whatever it is, whatever our struggle is, we need somebody to be accountable to. And if you need help with that, we, we will help you. Some of you need to be discipled. You never grew in your faith. You made some kind of profession or commitment when you were a kid, and you kind of grew up and you learned some of the stories, and that's where it all ended. And you need discipleship. I want you to mark on that card. I need to be discipled. I'm willing to make a commitment to discipleship. Some of you, quite frankly, need to go to counseling. And I'm not trying to be funny. You need some spiritual counseling. Some of you need even more than spiritual counseling, and that's okay. You maybe came in here with your little church game face on, but you're dying inside. It's okay to get honest and deal with it. And that's the fourth point. Deal with it. God wants us to deal with it. I love in John chapter 18, you know, Jesus has already been praying, take this cup from me. But then it's apparent that they're coming, crowds are coming, and Jesus goes to them. He doesn't run, doesn't hide behind a tree. He's up in the tree over there hiding right now. No, Jesus goes to them. He deals with it. Question is, are you dealing with it? Are you willing to deal with it? Some of us need accountability. Some of us need discipleship. Some of us need counseling. And some of us need to accept Christ as our Savior. We need to receive the grace and forgiveness and make a commitment and trust Him for what He did upon the cross and commit our lives to Him. Have you ever done that? I'm not asking you, have you prayed a prayer? I'm not asking you, do you go to church? How long you been coming? How many Bible verses do you know? I'm asking, have you come to a place where you said, Jesus, I commit my life to you. I believe you died for me. I believe that you took my place. and I believe my sin has been placed upon that cross and your blood covers me. Would you save me? And I make a commitment to follow you from this day forward. Not to be perfect, but to let your spirit flow through me and live through me. I give you all that I am. Have you ever made that commitment? I invite you to do so. Today, I want to close with this reading, and I've placed it in your bulletin. You can look at it later if you want to. After praying one hour every day, my perspective changed. Prayer is not a monologue to a deaf God, but a conversation 
with a God who hears prayer. Prayer is not helping God with an answer. It is asking God to help. It is not telling God what to do. It's telling him my needs. Prayer is not meant to be a joy ride, but it's definitely a spiritual discipline that produces joy. Prayer is not just coming to Jesus. It is letting Jesus come into me. Prayer is not only for the educated scholar. It's for everyone who will practice, persevere, and plan to pray. Prayer is not a substitute for time in the Word. It will lead to the Word. Prayer is not for the impatient, but for the one who waits. Prayer is not a place to boast, but a place to confess. Prayer is not my motivating God, but God motivating me. Prayer is not a waste of time. It's an appointment with Almighty God.